If you will, please turn with me then in our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at the parable of the sower this morning, which comes from chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. So Mark, chapter 4, and verses 1 to 20. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprung up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Thus far as the reading of God's word. That was pretty long, huh? (laughs) Well, We all love a good story, don't we? We all love a good story. For those of us who were, who are parents, I'm sure when our children were younger, we would tell them, you know, go, go grab a book and come bring it to mom and dad and, you know, come sit upon our lap so we can read it to you. And the child would get real excited and they'd run over and grab their book and come give it to you and sit on your lap for you to read it. Even adults, we like a good story, don't we? And we know this because, you know, if someone, comes into our presence and they say something like, you know, 
you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. Right? What happens? Ears perk up. We gather around, even if we don't know the person, because we want to know the, the juicy details of the story, don't we? But what makes a story good is also having a good storyteller who is able to keep you engaged. Right? When parents read a, a bedtime story to their children, when they do so, their, their voice fluctuates. They, they use gestures. They're very demonstrative, perhaps. Nobody likes a, a monotone reader who just sits there really stiff and talks like that, right? Nobody likes that. You have to draw interest if you want to keep people's attention, whether that's children or adults. And these stories can come in many different fashions and forms, can't they? Right? We can tell a story using a poem where you use some sort of rhythmic pattern which is catchy for the children and, and quite memorable for them. You can also tell a story by using what's called a, a fable or a, a tall tale, which is a, a short story that's fictionalized, that usually use, uses some personalized creature, right? like a turtle or a, a fish or a goat or something, in order to convey some truth to its reader. Well, another genre of storytelling is the parable. And this is the method that we read here today in our text and that Jesus uses throughout the Synoptic Gospels. Now, a parable has been described as an earthly story with heavenly meaning. A parable is an earthly story with heavenly meaning. And so it differs from, a, from let's say, a fable because a parable is a, is a real-life story from which truth is drawn. Parables are used to draw people in because in telling the parable, the listeners can actually see themselves in the story. Telling a parable also allows Jesus to, with little words, say a lot and to cause the hearers of it to think. Right? They're left thinking about the meaning of what it was that He just said. Now, thankfully for us, in our parable today, we have the benefit of being told what the parable is. And I say that's a benefit because not all of Jesus' parables are explained to us. Now, this parable of the sower can have many different names depending on who's telling the story. It's been called the parable of the sower. It's been called the parable of the seed. And it's been called the parable of the soils. Now, this is because whoever is telling you the story is trying to emphasize some particular aspect of the parable that they perceive to be the focal point. But one thing that does not change with this parable is who or what the sower, the seed, and the soils are. Now, the soil is none other than Christ our Lord. We are told this in Matthew's Gospel in the parable of the weeds. In chapter 13 and verse 37, Jesus says this, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So Jesus is the sower. And I would say by extension today, His ministers also would fall in line with that as they proclaim the Word of Christ. Now the seed is the Word of God. And we know this for as we read this morning, we can look at a passage just like, uh, or a verse just like in verse 14 where He says, the sower sows the Word. Right? So the seed is the Word of God. And then lastly, we have the soils. And the soils are the hearts of men and women. 
And we know this because in the parallel uh, telling of the story in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew says in verse 19 of chapter 13, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. Okay? So it's important for us to, to get these three right so that we get the parable right. So the sower is Christ and by extension his ministers. The seed is the word of God and the soils are the hearts of men and women. And so this morning, as we look at this parable now, we want to break it down under, under three headings in order that we might get the deeper sense of its meaning and that we might draw out of it what it is our Lord wants us to know. And so the first heading is, un, is the unprepared soils. Unprepared soils. The second heading then is the prepared soils. The prepared soils. And then our third heading is the difference in preparation. So we have the unprepared soils, the prepared soil, and the difference in preparation. So we see then Jesus begins in verse 3 by saying, Look! He's saying, Listen, hear what I'm about to tell you, for it is very important. And he says, there was a sower who begins to sow, and some of the seed falls along the path, or it falls along the road. And now what's interesting as we start to dive into this parable is the way in which they farmed in these days. Because it's different than the manner in which we do today. Probably about 15 years ago, my brothers and I, we, we dug a, a really big garden for our mother. But one of the first things that we had to do is we had to go rent one of those you know, plow machines. I don't know the right word for it. Those plow machines to, to, to dig up the ground. Before then, you would lay the seed. But here we see actually the reverse. The sower has gone out and he is just casting seed on the land. And what they would do then is usually they would have a stick with a a pointed edge at the bottom. And as they would walk, they would break up the ground with a stick so that the seed would then fall into the recesses of the earth. And so then it's easy for us to understand why some seed never grew. Because the sower never went through and broke up the ground underneath it. So it just sat on top of the earth. And so we are told this is why the birds then just came and they ate up the seed. But what I want us to see and to to learn is that just as the sower casts seed all over the place, our Lord likewise spreads the word indiscriminately and widely to all, to all who are near Him. For many of us, we have a tough time walking up to people and engaging them in conversation, especially if we don't know them. And even a harder time to do so if we want to talk to them about the Word of God. But this is in fact what Jesus did. We see this in these first three chapters of Mark's Gospel. He would talk to anyone who was near Him and around Him about the Lord, about the Kingdom of God, about the glorious news of the Gospel. In chapter 1, He walks into the synagogue and exposits the Word for all who are there to hear. Not only then, He he preaches not only in the synagogue, but in homes. He preaches not only to John's disciples, but to the followers of the Pharisees. He preaches to tax collectors. And He preaches to sinners. He was not shy about preaching to all people. 
And when we see this as Christians, we ought to be struck to the heart. We ought to be convicted. For here we see Jesus' love for people. And it's demonstrating that He never left an opportunity to share the Gospel. He never walked away not sharing the Gospel and missing the opportunity when it presented Himself. How many of us can say that? How many times have we been in the presence of unbelieving family members, mothers, fathers, or friends? And the opportunity has arisen to share with them the good news of the Gospel. And we passed up on the opportunity. And what happened? In the car ride home, what are we doing? We're usually kicking ourselves, aren't we? We should have told them about it. This was our opportunity. This was our chance. How many of us have had opportunity to invite people perhaps to church? Knowing that faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word. They need to sit under the preached Word. And yet, for some strange reason, we just don't do it. You see, Jesus demonstrates a love that we cannot come close to duplicating. But in His example, we should at the very least see a love that we ought to strive to reflect. We ought to see in the example of Christ how the Word of God is to frequently be resting upon our lips. You know, it's funny. We can talk to people all day about our jobs, about our hobbies, about our, uh, our families, but we have such a problem talking to people about the Word of God. But we see with Jesus, no matter where He goes, He's feeding people with the Word. He's scattering the seed because He understands that hearing and not hearing is a matter of life and death. And so we should have the same approach, especially ministers who have been entrusted with the Word of God. We are to preach the Word indiscriminately to all. Now what does Jesus say happened to the seed that has fallen by the wayside? In verse 4 we read that some birds came and devoured it. And in verse 15, then Jesus interprets verse 4 by saying this, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You see, when you are in church long enough, you will see all of these different types of soils in the church. Because this parable is really a parable about what transpires within the church. Now thankfully here, based on our, our size, it's obvious that if you're here, you want to be here. And that's good for the preacher. Because I know that you love God. right? That you love the Word of God. You love Reformed theology. You desire to sit under the preached Word. And unless you guys are all very good actors, you seem to be attentive and good listeners as well. And you know how I know that? Because I can look out and I can see every single person who's in the crowd. I can see your eyes. Now, the other thing is though is that everyone else can see that as well. Right? Everyone else can see if you come or if you don't come. And a lot of people don't like that. Right? That's why I think that it's usually, generally speaking, in bigger churches, those where there's not... Great accountability where you can just slide in and slide out. You can come one week and then not come for three more. Right? That, that I think it's in these places that these soils are most prevalent today. Okay? Now, what do we see though with this first soil? 
We're told they actually hear the word. They hear the word. These are people who come to church, who sit under the preached word. But they walk out without a clue of what it was that they just heard. These are the type of people who go to church perhaps because they they just believe it's the right thing to do. Or perhaps a spouse or a sibling or a parent makes them feel like they should come to church, but they have no interest in the message. They hear the Word, but only for a moment, and then the Word is gone. They walk out of church with no more knowledge than they had when they walked in. They are the soil on the road that was never tilled. Right? They are the soil in which the sower never walked by and broke up the ground so that the seed might go down and find root within them. And what Jesus is saying is that the heart of this here is unbroken by the Word of God. And so it never makes entrance into their heart. The hearer has no love for God. And they have no love for God's Word. And so it's easy then for Satan to swoop in and snatch the Word so that the abiding and saving truth of God's Word does not reside within them. Now perhaps Satan does this through suggestion. And he causes the hearer to drift away. Maybe thinking about what they just did on the previous day. Perhaps causing them to to worry about what's going to happen in the week ahead. But they happily go along with it. There's, There's no resistance to it. Because they have no interest in the message. And yet, brothers and sisters, you as believers must be alert and cautious. For at this very moment, Satan looks to do the very same thing to you. He looks today to distract you from His Word so that you walk out of these doors no more sanctified than you were coming in. Satan is looking to interfere with your communion with God and you must not let him. He wants your hearts to be cold and rigid as you worship Him and as you sit under the preached Word. He wants to distract you, to carry your mind away from Christ this day. And He sets out to do this. And believe me, brothers and sisters, when I say, I know how hard it is to fight against that. We all have experienced it as we, as we sat in the pews and as we listened to the minister and we were very attentive. All of a sudden, our minds drifted somewhere else and we're thinking about something else that's going on. And by the time we catch ourselves and we refocus, we've missed so much of the sermon. Or we know what it's like to go sit down somewhere quietly to pray. And as you're praying, what happens? All of a sudden you start to think about what's going on in your life other than what you were praying for. And by the time you refocus yourself on prayer once again, you forgot where you, were, where you started. You forgot what you were praying. And so this ought to be a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, of our incapability of fighting against the wiles of Satan apart from Christ. We need to see our own weakness. And it ought to cause us to totally and fully and completely rely on Christ. It ought to drive us to prayer. That the Holy Spirit might help us. That we would remain intent on being focused in church. And that we would not allow any interruption to occur as we engage in worship. But this is why preparation for worship is so important. This is why preparation in worship is so important. And that these couple minutes that we give you guys before we begin is not enough. It is not enough. 
Preparation really starts on Saturday. Preparation starts on Saturday. So that when you wake up on Sunday, before you come into church, you are already contemplating the Word of God. You already spend time in prayer with God. You have already meditated upon God's Word so that when you walk in here, your heart is already lively and awakened by God. You walk in here eagerly anticipating that sweet communion and fellowship that you've been waiting for since you woke up in the morning. And our hearts are to be on fire and consumed with love of God so that just as Satan, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness and failed, that he would fail in every effort he makes to interrupt and to drive a wedge between our communion with God. Now we're told that not only does this seed fall upon the path or the wayside, it also fell upon the rocky ground. And we read this starting in verse 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And how does Jesus interpret that? Well, in verse 16, He says that these are the people who receive the Word. In fact, they receive it with joy. But they only endure for a while. Because when trouble comes their way, what happens? They fall away. They fall away. Now many of us probably know people or have known people who fit this profile. I think a lot of times this occurs in churches where the whole counsel of God is not proclaimed to the people. You know, where, where the leadership in those churches uh, get together and think about and strategize on what topical sermons they are to preach to the people that the people want to hear. See, but that is so dangerous. Giving the people what they want to hear. Telling them that God just wants you to be, to be happy. And so people hear this week after week after week. And yet, when people come into the church, people who struggle, people who are dealing with issues, and they hear this. And yet, they have no happiness in their life. And they're having troubles. And they're ill. And they have struggles. What happens then? When they aren't happy as they've been told they ought to be. Soon, they fall away from Christ. But the promise that they are given is not a promise that actually Christ gives to people. He does not give us that promise. In fact, this gives only a false interpretation or a false impression of what the Christian life entails. But this is also a result of biblical illiteracy in the church. Biblical illiteracy in the church. People don't open up and read their Bibles anymore. This is why we have so many, uh, why we lack so many strong churches. Right there, there are no longer Bereans in the church who, who go home and who read the scriptures to see if what the ministers were saying were so. People come to have their ears tickled, not to render to God what belongs to God, worship and praise and honor and glory. Instead, they come in order to see what they can get out of it. And so they have no stability because the real work of the Spirit has not occurred within their heart. And so because they don't actually know what the Bible says, or because they actually never heard a true Gospel presentation, they don't know that Jesus says that all who are to come to Him are to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple. They don't know that the apostles told the saints 
that there will be tribulation continually until the Lord returns. And so because they do not know their Bibles, they are unaware, they're unaware of the lives of the early saints. They are unaware that as Jesus sent the apostles off to preach the word, and Matthew chapter 10, 22, he tells them, they will be hated for my name's sake. You see, when we become Christians, the promise is not an easy life. But in fact, if you continue to read on in verse 22, the promise Jesus gives them is, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's that you're going to experience trouble and hardship. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It was probably not but a month ago that I read off to you the list of the, of the eleven apostles who were true apostles of the Lord. And what happened to them? Ten of them put to death and one of them banished. In fact, as Christians, we ought to look at persecution in a completely different way than the world looks at persecution and the way that the world looks at suffering. Today in society, if someone suffers, if someone is going through troubles, usually we think they must have did something wrong and it's a bad thing. But in fact, as a Christian, we ought to see that suffering and being mistreated and being hated by the world is a good thing. And to not be mistreated and hated by the world, in fact, is the bad thing. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Brothers and sisters, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, do you count it a blessing? Do you count it a blessing? You ought to. Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will likewise persecute you. Large parts of Christianity today say that we are to have unbroken joy and happiness as Christians. That we are not to suffer pain and anguish. And they look upon those who suffer and think they must have did something wrong or perhaps God doesn't love them as much as He loves someone who appears to have that joy and that happiness. But in fact, brothers and sisters, when persecution and when trials arise in your life, it is not a lessening of the love of God in your life. It is not a taking away or a retracting of God's love in your life. Rather, those sufferings, those trials, and those persecutions are acts of God's love in your life. That is why we ought to see them as blessings. Because in fact they draw us into closer communion with God because they drive us to the foot of Christ. I mean, look at Christ's example. As He suffered before He was about to be crucified, what did He do? He went off and prayed. He was driven to prayer. And so likewise, we ought to be driven to prayer. But for those in the church who have this rocky heart, Persecution and trials when they arise simply demonstrate that that seed, that word, never took root in their heart. The word superficially clung to their hearts but never made way. The reception of the word did not result in a changed heart. At the first sign of any real trouble, the profession they made when it impacted their life and their happiness caused them to flee. Caused them to flee. Now, I want you to understand that is not as if God wants His people to be unhappy and miserable. He does not want that. In fact, He wants us to be happy and joyous 
but not in the way that the world sees it or even in the way that many Christians view it. They view their happiness and joy connected to seeing their own will be done. That's when they're happy. Our happiness, though, ought to coincide with seeing the glory of God advance. Your degree of happiness and your degree of holiness ought to be tied to your degree of obedience. And that happiness is only a product of that saving gospel. That now through holiness, we are being restored to happiness. And that happiness lies in our contentment with seeing God's will be done. Not our own. With seeing God's will be done in our life. Whether that means bringing us high or bringing us very, very low. In fact, the author to the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. You see, Christ suffered and endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. And the joy that was set before Him was the glory of God in the salvation of His church. You see, it was Christ's suffering that was a means of the glorification of God. And so Christ voluntarily and cheerfully endured. And we, brothers and sisters, are to imitate Christ. Christ is our exemplar. He is our example. He is the standard that we ought to mimic. And so we are to know that following Christ oftentimes means suffering distress in this world. And yet, we are to take comfort. What does Paul say to the church in Thessalonica? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, remember, they were suffering affliction. And he says, I send Timothy to you, and he's to exhort you in the faith that you be not moved by affliction, because what? We were destined for this. He says, we were destined for suffering. We were destined for affliction as believers. But you know what we can take comfort in and be encouraged with? That those who suffer with Christ likewise will be glorified with Christ. Those who suffer with Christ can look forward to the sure expectation that we will be glorified with Him one day. We then move on to the the last of the unprepared soils, which is the the thorny ground, which we see in verse 7, where we read this. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And here in verses 18 and 19, Jesus describes these people who hear the word, as he interprets it in verses 18 and 19, and tells us that what happened, Right, The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things choke out the Word and they prove to be unfaithful. Now, I'm not sure if you would agree with me, but I think of all three of the unprepared soils that this one is most predominant in a culture today, isn't it? Those who would appear to be Christians. They look like Christians. They act like Christians. They can have Christian conversations with you. They might even conform parts of their life to the teachings of Christ. These are people who are so close to the kingdom, yet not there. They are those who appear to be at heaven's door, but have no access through the gate. 
These are people who stay in church their entire lives, thinking that they are saved. But when Christ returns, they will hear Him say, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And why is that? Why does He say that? Well, Jesus says, because they were unfruitful. Their chief love was the world. And so they were unconverted. James asks, Can anyone say they have faith but not works? And his answer is what? It is no. Remember what we read not a few weeks ago. As Jesus' mother and brothers were outside the house, what does He say? Whoever does the will of My Father, that is My brother and sister and mother. And yet anyone today who does the will of God doesn't do it because there's something inherently faithful in you. But rather it's because God-produced faith never fails to bring forth God-produced works in the life of a believer. And so, even though week after week, Sunday after Sunday they came, the Word of God never penetrated the hard exterior shell of their heart. And so they maintained a love for worldly things. And they continued chasing after worldly things, trying to find satisfaction in worldly and earthly things for which you will never find it. They were constantly trying to fill a void they felt in their life through these earthly, worldly, and temporal things. And yet, brothers and sisters, I think that this is actually the reason why we see so much of these three unconverted soils in churches today. It is because as human beings created in the image of God, we long for and are attracted to the eternal. Right? All creatures, we long for and are attracted to that which is eternal. St. Augustine said this, that the heart of man was created for God and that it cannot find rest until it rests in the Father's heart. He continues to say that all men seek after God, but they do not seek Him in the right way. They seek Him below when He is above. They seek Him on earth when He is in heaven. This, brothers and sisters, is why we are told as believers to seek Him in heaven, to set our minds upon heavenly things, upon spiritual things, because that is where our life lies. We are told by Paul in his letter to the Colossians that your life, if you are a believer, is hidden with God in Christ. You have died to this world. And so I ask you here today, have you died to it? Have you died to the the love of money? Have you died to the love of sin? Because it is sin that makes the hard heart, makes the heart hard, excuse me, and unreceptive to the Word. We see this in Pharaoh in the Old Testament. We see this with the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament. But the heart of faith, brothers and sisters, is pliable. It's soft. It's bendable and moldable by God. And we see this in those two groups of brothers that we've read about so far in Mark's Gospel, haven't we? James and John and Simon and Andrew. They were willing to give up all for Christ. They forsook the world in order to follow after Christ. And so the question is, have you? Have you? Now we have to save points 2 and 3 for next week. 
But a reality that we see so far is that three-fourths of the hearers are not truly converted. It is not the majority, but the minority that make up the good soil. But as we will see next week, it has nothing to do with the goodness of the soil, but rather it has to do with the goodness of God. As Christ the sower takes the stick and breaks up that hard ground of our heart, and He cultivates it, and He tills it, and He causes it to grow. But He does it with the seed. He does it with the Word. And so this ought to teach us this morning how important it is for us to be here at church, to be attentive, to sit under the preached Word. It ought to cause us to to love Christ even more when we hear about this. As we understand His love and His mercy and His generosity, as He scatters forth that seed, as He spreads that Word all over indiscriminately to all people. Yet it also ought to cause us to grow in a greater appreciation for the Word of God, right? for the seed of God, knowing that no root can be established in you and I apart from both the sower and the seed. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You that although You speak in parables, You have given Your people the key to understanding. You have given us Your Holy Spirit who reveals to us the deep, deep things of Scripture. We pray, Lord, this day that any here who are unconverted, who have a a hard heart, that You would break up the ground of that heart and allow Your Word and Your seed to take root in their hearts. We pray, Father, that You would continue to cultivate and to grow the faith and belief of those who are already Your saints here today. That You would help us as we worship You to remain attentive on Your Word, to understand how important preparation is as we come into Your presence. And so, Father, we gather together this morning, having read Your Word, being blessed by it mightily, and asking all these things in Christ's name. Amen.